Welcome to The Human Perspective, a podcast with the internationally recognized badass disability rights activist, Judy Human. This episode, Judy chats with Ann Cody and Sherry Blowett. Anne and Sherry are both retired Paralympic athletes who have filled many different roles as leaders in the area of sports and disability. Additionally, Anne works at the U.S. Department of State, and Sherry is a physician and professor at Harvard Medical School. In this episode, Judy, Anne, and Sherry discuss the importance of including disabled people in sports, the evolution of the Paralympic movement, and so much more. The Human Perspective is produced by me, Kylie Miller, and Judy Human. So let's roll up, lay down, dance around, whatever makes you feel best, and let's meet this episode's guest. Welcome back to The Human Perspective. Anne and Sherry, you're both Paralympic medalists who played on the United States team for three Paralympic Games. And I think everybody will find that both of these women have very rich lives that are interesting for people to learn about and to look at emulating. Let's start by having each of you introduce yourselves to the audience with a little bit more background about who you are. Um, Anne, you've been in Paralympics longer, so why don't you start? <laughs> That's very kind of you. <laughs> so, yes, I competed in the 1984 Paralympic Games on the women's wheelchair basketball team for the U.S. Then I went on to the 1988 Games in Seoul and the 1992 Games in Barcelona, where I competed in wheelchair racing on the track. That's where I've earned my six medals, four silver, one gold, and one prize. Sherry, would you like to introduce yourself? Yes. Thanks, Judy. My name is Sherry Blowett. I competed internationally for about 10 years, uh, from about 1998 to 2008. Participated in three Paralympics in Sydney, Athens, and Beijing. And you're a Dr. Sherry Blowett, right? True. Yes, Dr. Sherry Blowett. <laughs> and could you also talk with us about when you acquired your disability? Sure. Be happy to. I acquired my disability when I was 16 years old. I was in high school. I was a junior in high school. I was already a competitive athlete. Um, I wanted to play field hockey at the collegiate level. That was my goal. And then when I acquired my disability, I immediately, you know, felt a loss, right? Because sport was such a huge part of my life. So I started asking about what opportunities might be available at the collegiate level for me. And there was only one university at that time that actually had a program where women could have competitive collegiate careers. And that was at the University of Illinois. What year was this? 1981, when I started at the U of I, as we call it. And I played on the women's wheelchair basketball team there and also made the national team. But I pursued track and road racing, wheelchair track and road racing in the off season and did some competitive track and field meets. And, you know, initially I wasn't really sold on the sport and I wasn't enjoying it <laughs> because I didn't have equipment that fit me. And so anyway, so it took me a while to really um, adapt to the idea of being a wheelchair racer. But once I did, I fully committed and then was selected for the 1988 Paralympic team and the Olympic exhibition event for women wheelchair racers. And then in 1992, again, I made the U.S. team in track and field for wheelchair racing. So you mentioned the fact that the equipment that you had uh, wasn't that great. How has that changed over the years? I mean, as an individual athlete, as you progress, if you start, you know, showing real promise and performance, then you can get sponsored by a wheelchair 
racing company, manufacturing company, and that's what I was able to do eventually um, after several years of training and competing. But that's not always an option open to everybody, especially when you're starting out. So I first used hand-me-down chairs that were initially designed for other people. So they didn't fit me perfectly. In fact, they were quite large. So that made competing really frustrating and challenging. So, you know, looking for used equipment is a relatively inexpensive way to start or get a start. And there are programs in communities around the country who also have racing wheelchairs and programs for youth and adults where you might be able to you know, join that program or sign out the equipment and use it to see if it's something that really is going to interest you and that you plan to become more involved with because the equipment is expensive and it's not something that you necessarily want to invest in until you're sure you're sure your child is going to want to do it on a regular basis. Did you know anything about the Paralympics while you were in high school? Nothing. When I was in rehabilitation, the nurses told me about a local Paralympian from Syracuse who was a swimmer. So they knew about the Paralympic Games and that there were competition opportunities, you know, at the international level. But there was very little happening at the local level. Even in Syracuse, there was a men's wheelchair basketball program. And Syracuse was about an hour drive from my town. So not really something that was really possible. And I wasn't interested in playing with a group of adult men frankly. (laughs) That just didn't appeal to me as a 16-year-old in any way. Sherry, what's your disability? When did you acquire it? Um, My disability is that I acquired a spinal cord injury actually very young at 16 months of age. I was born and raised on a farm in Northwest Iowa and um, was involved in a traumatic farming accident and acquired a, a T10 spinal cord injury. Obviously, I don't have any memory of it. My earliest memories are of as being a disabled person um, and self-identifying as having a disability because that was really my only lived experience. So um, Anne and I have a lot of, our lives have a lot of parallels. <laughs> what are some of those? You know, just as Anne is telling her story, I'm smiling and nodding at pretty much every point she's making because my experience was very similar. And yet you're a significant number of years in age different. So I think that is something we can also get into talking about. Yeah. In fact, I, I was injured as a 16 month old the year that Anne, it sounds like she started college and started to discover some of those opportunities. Oh my gosh. I didn't know that, Sherry. Yeah, I didn't know <laughs> until now. <laughs> But despite there being, I don't know, probably an about an 18 or 20 year gap, I had many similar experiences, you know, growing up in a pretty rural community, you know, the only option was public school. Everybody went to the same school that was actually K through 12, all under one roof. (laughs) So every, you know, everybody knew everybody. And I was the only student in the school with a visible disability. You know, everybody was kind and worked really hard to include me in activities, but I always felt pretty isolated, you know, without having a tribe or a, or a community in my school. And so going through like the latter part of elementary school and junior high, my mom actually, who I credit a lot too, in terms of her, you know, really being a fierce advocate and making sure that I had the opportunities I needed, but she sought out uh, a wheelchair basketball program that was going on in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, which was the nearest small city close to our farm. And it was a, it was a veterans program. So here she was taking me as this probably at that time, sixth or seventh grade young girl, you know, I tried it out a couple of times and as a young girl, you know, didn't really connect with it um, because it was all 
older men playing and it really, you know, wasn't a natural fit. So actually I was very much turned off to sport by that experience because I said, oh, this isn't for me. You know, I'll do other things. I'll pursue other opportunities. And then when I um, got into eighth grade, I had just a really, you know, fortunate moment when our high school track coach um, learned about the sport of wheelchair racing because the state of Iowa had a wheelchair racing event in their state track meet. And so he came back to school and he told me he had seen this, this wheelchair racing event and he encouraged me to go out for our high school track team. And um, I initially told him no, because my prior experiences had been negative. And he continued to ask me to do it and try to recruit me for the team. And eventually I said, okay, you know, I'll give it a try. And I went out for the team in ninth grade. And um, again, I was the only student with a disability on the team. I got a jersey and started pushing laps. And actually, yet again, near the end of that track season, I was ready to quit because, you know, I was still isolated. I wasn't really a part of an adaptive sport or parasport community, so to speak. Um, but at the end of that track season, I went to this state meet. And there, when I rolled out onto the track, I immediately ran into several other teenage girls who also had disabilities and found out that there was a wheelchair racing team that trained in Des Moines, Iowa on the weekends. And that was the hook, right? That finally got me really excited about it. Not because I dreamed of being a Paralympian, but because I wanted to be friends with these other adolescent girls who had visible disabilities because I finally felt like I had found a community of people that I could truly relate to and that, you know, understood my challenges and growing up in this isolated community. So started to go to those practices and within, you know, several months, finally got a racing chair that fit appropriately. I also started in one that was way too big. It was a rental Finally got an appropriate racing chair and then only then started to actually like truly learn the sport and develop talent in the sport. So it was a long road. And I think a common theme in our stories is that at that time, these were very much opportunities that you had to seek out and be very proactive and honestly lucky to find them. That's something that I think is changing to some extent and that we need to continue to evolve. Um, it shouldn't be so hard to find these opportunities, but it was at that time and it, and it still is in many ways. So maybe we could talk about where we are today, because both of you are saying that there are improvements, but what are some of the barriers for disabled people getting introduced and actively participating in sports today? I think Sherry touched on a few of them being, you know, the quality and quantity of programs that are available. You know, there are some real quality programs if you're looking for those, but you have to either relocate or travel long distances to participate on weekends and really make a lot of sacrifices personally, professionally, and for families if we're talking about young people. But there definitely are more programs than there were in 1981 um, in the communities. And there's been a lot of really intentional work done to expand those opportunities. Um, a couple of ways that that has been done, Judy, you'll remember this from the Department of Education. There used to be an actual competitive grant program for local communities to apply for recreation and sports programming funds. So those programs, I think, were introduced initially in the Rehabilitation Act or one of the amendments. So it had been around for about 30 years. And really, if you study the roots of many of the community-based programs and university-based programs around the country, they had their roots in getting those grants from the Department of Ed. And we tried to continue to keep those going for as long as we could. 
but um, they were eventually eliminated. Rehabilitation centers, medical um, institutions usually will try to do some type of programming. So if you live in or near, you know, medium-sized cities with um, medical centers, there are opportunities there. I think we're also seeing, because of the work, frankly, at the Paralympic level, which Sherry can talk more about, we're seeing more universities you know, training athletes with disabilities in swimming and track and field and other sports like that. And we're talking not specifically necessarily about wheelchair athletes, but blind athletes, athletes with amputations, you know, competitive, serious athletes who um, are looking to make a national team. But going back to the community level, just for a moment, I want to mention quickly the 1996 Paralympic Games in Atlanta. One of the legacies of those games was establishing an organization responsible for developing sport for youth at the community level. And the organization is Play Sports, named after the mascot from the 96 Games. And that network of local programs that got developed through funding and technical assistance has really gone on. Well, they went on to be chapters of U.S. Paralympics and much more involved in building that pipeline, right, from community-based entry-level programming to getting athletes who are interested to um, more competitive elite programming along the pipeline. But there's still a lot more work to be done because we're, you know, we're really just scratching the surface of getting the folks who have qualifying Paralympic uh, type disabilities. So Sherry, what field are you in medicine? And the reason I'm asking you the question is, when do you start meeting disabled individuals? And also you work in a very large medical institution and uh, your work really is broader, separate from what you've been doing in the Paralympics. I'm wondering how healthcare providers are transmitting information, if there are, about the value of sports for disabled individuals? Yeah, great question. So um, I'd say there are probably sort of two different facets of that. I am based in Boston in the Harvard system or the Mass General Brigham system. And specifically, I um, have a leadership role at Spalding Rehab Network. So we are the rehabilitation arm of Mass General Brigham, which you're right, it's a massive healthcare system. And um, with our position here in rehab, we have the ability to introduce certainly physical activity in general, but also sport to people at a very early point in their rehabilitation journey and work really hard to do that. Knowing that everyone has autonomy, everyone of course gets to make their independent decision about whether they're interested in pursuing it, but at least people should know what their opportunities are. So even when an individual is here, say having experienced a new spinal cord injury or you know, we have a pediatric floor. So, you know, a disability that they acquire in childhood um, or a developmental disability, for example, you know, we integrate sports exposure as part of their actual physical therapy and occupational therapy. So that's a really great opportunity. And I'd say that model exists at most of the major rehabilitation centers across the country. Now that said, only a small proportion of people with disabilities interface formally with rehab, right? Exactly. You know, so many people out there either are born with a disability, but don't have access to formal rehab or don't seek it out or acquire a disability in adulthood that doesn't in our medical system here in the U.S. qualify you for formal rehab. And so there's still a large role to play for primary care physicians, pediatricians, you know, those clinicians who are interfacing with everyone, with all comers, to be aware of the importance of sport and physical activity for people with disabilities, you know, and the range of opportunities that are available, whether it's someone, you know, who wants to 
simply do a workout video in their home to get their heart rate up a little bit or someone who might someday aspire to be a Paralympian. And that spectrum is important and okay, right? Not everybody aspires to be a Paralympian and that's fine, but we do know that for health, a baseline level of physical activity is really important for all of us. So I think the rehab sector honestly has it pretty nailed down. I think it's the broader health community and medical community that actually where we need to do more work. There's some activity going on. For example, there's a large initiative run by the American College of Sports Medicine and several other partners that's called Exercises Medicine. So thinking about exercise like as a prescription. So if you're a physician that you should give everybody a prescription for exercise. You know, there's great partnerships through, for example, Nick had the National Center on Health, Physical Activity and Disability, which is down at the University of Alabama, Birmingham and Lakeshore, the Lakeshore Institute. And, you know, they're partnering, for example, with this Exercises Medicine Initiative to try to bring, you know, more disability expertise and disability um, awareness to these broader kind of public health-based physical activity initiatives. So there's sort of, I think, two different arms to that. Both are extremely important, but both are a little unique. What role do you think Title IX has played, if any, in uh, getting public schools and universities to do more in the area of disability? Yeah, I mean, I was one of the early beneficiaries of Title IX when I was in grade school. Title IX of the Elementary and Secondary Age Education Act created the requirement that girls and women have equal access to all educational programs and curriculum, including extracurricular activities. And the women's sports community worked hard to make sure that the regulations for Title IX really spelled out the equal benefits that were needed to ensure girls and women were getting the same access to sports opportunities as boys and men. So that's had a real impact in the U.S. broadly, um, Title IX has, because the percentage of women in C-suite executive positions, something like 80-some percent of them played competitive sports or organized sports. So, And the benefits and the, and the statistics demonstrate that this has been wildly successful and impactful. And so I was an early beneficiary in the 1970s as a grade school, non-disabled kid. There was after school organized sports for me and for my peers. So we grew up playing sports and those opportunities obviously continued up through middle school and high school and at the collegiate level because of the people who were you know, paving the foundation. If you had asked me how Title IX impacted my ability to have opportunities as a disabled young woman, I would have said, you know, there really wasn't much of a benefit initially thinking about it. But looking back at it, Title IX, you know, created leaders and teachers and, you know, women working in the field who got it, who understood that girls and women with disabilities should have these opportunities. Um, Parents, um, men and women who saw the benefits of Title IX through their wives, daughters, children also recognized, well, of course, there's value in this for girls and women with disabilities as well. So I think lots of advocacy and opportunity happened in wheelchair sports when I think about that specifically. So many of the people working at the grassroots level starting programs were women. (laughs) And Tatiana McFadden was, I believe, the first or one of the first young women to use Title IX when she was being denied equal opportunity to participate and practice in wheelchair racing when she was in high school or was it younger? 
it was high school. And actually, in her case, I believe they ended up using the Rehabilitation Act that was most applicable to the discrimination she was experiencing. However, the Women's Sports Foundation took interest in her case and provided some support behind it in terms of advocacy and gaining access to people that they'd worked with and also, you know, some staff support in it. So they were very helpful and interested in seeing Tatiana succeed and that case succeed. And Anne, maybe could you, because I know you were directly involved, so I feel like you can speak to it better than me, but do you want to talk a little bit about the Department of Ed and the Dear Colleague letter from 2013 as well? Yeah, sure, sure. So um, with the McFadden case in the state of Maryland, specifically, that is where um, her case was heard and she was awarded the opportunity to compete alongside her non-disabled track teammates. So after that law passed, we started working on, at the federal level and I um, I worked for federal affairs consulting firm. So I was actually working on the case with one of the Women's Sports Foundation staff. So we designed an advocacy campaign to get this change at the federal level and were successful in getting a GAO report, which requires research and analysis of what's happening in the field. The GAO staff went out and interviewed, you know, teachers, principals, students, parents across the country to understand the situation. So basically what that report did was provide evidence that there was no equity. In fact, there was very, very limited opportunity for students with disabilities in extracurricular sports or physical education, um, quality physical education. So, So that provided the impetus for us to go to the Department of Education and ask them to send a dear colleague letter reminding schools of their responsibility under the Rehab Act. Um, The regulation says that students with disabilities have equal access to all educational programs, including extracurricular activities, which is what sports fall under. So that letter took a while because we had a change in administration. And under the Obama administration, the Department of Ed finally issued a letter. They didn't call it a dear colleague letter because that's a very specific type of document. But it was it was a letter that went to every school K through 12, and I believe also higher education institutions, although I think the focus was on K through 12, but it certainly sent a message to higher education that they were going to be expected to follow requirements under the Rehab Act as well. And Sherry, you have, you know, (laughs) living with Eli, who's an expert on these issues, how that has um, the implementation process and what that's looked like. If I could say before, Sherry, you mentioned a little more about this. I know for our audience, we're getting a little bit into the weeds, but let me just say that I think this is really important to understand that there are a series of laws that have been put in place over the last, I'm getting emotional, (laughs) over the last 40, 50 years, that while it takes a long time for things to really get implemented, when people like Anne and Sherry and Eli and many others get involved to really understand the importance in this case of athletics, the discrimination that has existed historically, the ability to look at how to break it down. And as you can see, there are many, many, many different steps. And I think that's ultimately what we're all needing to look at is what is our objective here? We're talking about sports, but it really doesn't matter what the area is. What do we need to do? What is in place already? And how can we strengthen what's in place? 
So you want to talk a brief bit about Eli because I want to get more also into discussing your roles in the Paralympics. Go ahead, Sherry. Of course, of course. So my better half, <laughs> Eli Wolf. So he and I met through the Paralympics. I was a wheelchair racer and he was a soccer player in the sport of soccer seven aside, which is designed for athletes with cerebral palsy. And um, I work in the medical field, but he has stayed involved in sport and particularly, you know, the aspects of sport that, you know, include reaching underserved communities. So women in sport, disabled people in sport, other rights-based issues in sport. And um, he and a, a group of a tremendous group of advocates. I mean, frankly, I feel like we're all involved and you've been involved too. I pitch in a lot too. I mean, it's to your point, Judy, everybody plays a role, but um, there's been a lot of work in thinking about, you know, how do we then, you know, take this legislation and the policy and something like the Rehab Act and help to elevate understanding and then help to elevate implementation because sure, it's great to have the legal protections and to know that a student like Tatiana can file suit if needed to protect her rights. But, um, you know, we want to have these programs more broadly available as the standard, right? Rather than having to have it always have to be a fight. And really where we're at is states are in different levels of progress, I would say. And Anne, please jump in anytime. But I'd say that this move towards implementation is in different levels in different places around the country. In states that are doing well, there's been an identification of the need to elevate this work through their Interscholastic Athletic Association. Like here in Massachusetts, it's called the MIAA or the Massachusetts Interscholastic Athletic Association. That's the state-led organization that connects to every school in the whole state and provides like the standards and policy for the implementation of sports programs in those schools. You know, they do a lot of policy setting. They do a lot of coaching training. They really are sort of the organization that sets priorities. And so in some states where there's a lot of progress, the athletic association will get involved in doing things like coaching training and, and upskilling sports staff to be prepared to work with students with disabilities and to understand their obligations. And there may be a few champion schools, right, who do a great job of starting a program and identifying students who may be well served by the program. And then those schools provide an example for others, right? And the, the sort of network begins to spread. There are certain sports where integration is really not difficult. I think the best examples are individual sports like track and field and swimming, where it's so easy. I mean, it's a pretty low barrier to integrate a student with a disability onto the team and to think about any adjustments to the training that might be needed to accommodate that student. And then everybody trains and competes together. Um, whereas other sports, specifically team sports like wheelchair basketball, for example, it's a little harder because any given school may not have enough students with disabilities to fill a whole team. And then you may need to think about different models. So for example, maybe a school district brings together a team and competes against other districts. Oh, and then I also want to say, there's also a model, of course, where some students with disabilities may simply completely integrate into a team and not need accommodations as well. For example, a, um, you know, an amputee runner or a student with a, you know, who's legally blind or a student who is deaf, where accommodations may be quite minimal and it's important to just ensure that that student has access. So there's, there's different models for different sports. Every state is in a bit of a different place in terms of how much they prioritized it from the standpoint of raising awareness with athletic departments, training coaches, training teachers, and creating that expectation, um, but but things are changing slowly but surely. I think that advocates, you know, sometimes wish that there would be, you know, something like a Title IX, right, where there was more of a immediate requirement to just do it, 
rather than more of this sort of phased rollout. Um, and it'll be interesting to see how that develops um, over the next several years. I mean, I would quite frankly presume that the way it's operating now is not the way it should. Yeah. That it should be a just do it. Because if you look at Title IX, I'm sure in the beginning it was really pressure. But I think over time, it's no longer pressure. It's a just do it. So both of you clearly have been both personally involved with uh, sports and as Paralympians. And I'm wondering, were you mentored? Have you mentored others? What do you see as the role of mentoring, in this case, in the area of sports? I guess I should start because I'm, I have many more years going back. I kind of like the uh, progression of the conversation. Um, so, yeah, as a 16-year-old, when I was released from rehabilitation and returned home to finish my junior year of high school with my class, my coach was also our physical education teacher, and she intentionally provided like independent physical education opportunities for me so that I could go and do some weightlifting to continue the strengthening of my upper body that was needed. She did research at the library at, at Cortland State University and had me doing wheeling my everyday chair, you know, for distances around the gym. And then eventually I ran a fun run. And, um, and then she had me um, try shooting baskets, shooting archery, going to swimming. She encouraged me and, and my friends and I went once a week to the community college um, so I could swim because getting in the water felt great. Um, and I loved the water prior. And she was a mentor for me when she was my coach as well, just someone that I looked up to. And I learned so much from her just about sport in general and, and leadership and, and how to conduct yourself. And so she was really my first mentor in that space. And then when I went to the University of Illinois, the thing that was so incredible was having this community, as Sherry pointed out, um, was her experience with her wheelchair racing cohorts when she was a teen. So there were some older women who were graduate students who were playing wheelchair basketball and racing and just really, really phenomenal athletes but also mentors and teammates and a really important support system. And then finally, I'll say that I had a lot of male mentors in the disability sports field, starting with my coaches at Illinois, and then just throughout you know, my personal career development and, and leadership development, had some wonderful um, mentors, both male and female. But I think it's really important to just recognize and value. And, and those were people with and without disabilities. Where did you meet Dana? Ah, my husband. <laughs> I met him in the 1980s at a national track meet, National Wheelchair Association Nationals. Initially, we met there. We were aware of each other, but we weren't dating or anything until years later when I moved to Washington. Let's move forward and talk about the roles that you've both played on the national and international levels with the International Paralympic Committee. Sherry, you want to talk a little bit about your role? Yeah, happy to. My roles have evolved a little bit over the years. I mean, clearly my earliest involvement was as an athlete and, you know, competing over many years. And um, over that period of time, it was really, if I look back, it was really incredible to see the, the growth of the Paralympic movement, even from the lens of being an athlete. You know, my first international competition in 98, you know, we barely had a jacket 
that said USA on it. And we had all, everybody had to pay for their own flight and accommodations. It was really, you know, you could compete, but it's all on you. And by the time I retired from international competition in 2008, there was a lot more work towards, you know, integration and recognition of the Paralympic component of the sport under our U.S. programming and, you know, more directionality towards equity of experience, although there was still a long way to go at that time, but it was much better um, and tremendous growth over those years. When I retired from competing, I very quickly recognized, even that as I was contemplating re retirement, that um, sport was such an integral part of my life journey and my identity that, you know, there was no way I could just hang up my racing gloves and turn away and never be a part of it again. So I started to immediately scheme about how I could stay involved. And um, at that time, I was a medical student, so it was natural to to think about staying involved from the lens of like sports medicine or contributing on the medicine and health front. Uh, in that same time frame as I was retiring, the IPC actually at that time, Anne was on the board. So thank you, Anne, made a decision that every standing committee of the IPC should have an athlete representative. And so there are very few Paralympic athletes around the world who also had careers in medicine. So because of that alignment, I was able to join that committee as the athlete rep. And that was really the start of my journey towards being involved in more leadership roles. You know, that was really an incredible opportunity for me because I got to then, you know, travel to the IPC headquarters and sit around a table with other decision makers and start to weigh in on things like, you know, medical policies and things that we needed to be doing to promote athlete health. And I still serve on that committee today. So, you know, I've continued to stay involved and, you know, continue to facilitate that growth. These days, interestingly, so much of what we do is aligned with the Olympic movement because, you know, the things that are helpful to promote athlete health in the Olympics are similarly important in the Paralympics. I think the best example is more attention to athlete mental health, right? And the importance of thinking about athletes health holistically and knowing that, you know, winning is important, but winning the right way is really important and ensuring that our athletes come out of their competitive experience, you know, feeling like it was positive for their well-being and that we, you know, supported their mental health as well as their physical health through that journey. And then more recently, over the last now six, seven years, that involvement at the international level with the IPC and the medical side sort of expanded. And through a number of different, I guess you could say, entry points, um, I ended up getting more involved back in the U.S. <laughs> and ultimately in 2017, joined the board of the U.S., at that time, U.S. Olympic Committee, which has now changed its name to the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Committee. And that's been yet another facet of leadership involvement that actually isn't medically focused at all. <laughs> There's, you know, tiny bit that touches on medical, but it's actually far more broad and looking at really the growth of the whole Olympic and Paralympic movement here in the U.S. And I'm really just, you know, incredibly honored and proud to be in that role. And I think one of the coolest things about it is that I'm not there as like the Paralympic rep, right? I'm just there to be able to weigh in on everything that we do as an organization, inclusive of Paralympics. And I think that that positioning and being an independent member of that board, to me, it's been a, you know, a really incredible experience. Again, we still have a lot more work to do, but we've sure come a long way. And, uh, and a lot of my success, I owe to the early leadership that Anne provided. So she should talk about her experience too. <laughs> and you've been at the State Department now for a number of years. How have you, well, just give me one example of how you've used 
your lifelong experiences, Paralympic participation being one of them, but so many other areas to really help advance Paralympics around the world. So thank you for that question. When I started at the State Department, I worked in the Sports Diplomacy Division, and I had the opportunity to create a program around disability and sport. So there was an existing mentoring program that we had for girls and women, and it really was having a lot of early impact and success. And I knew that it was exactly the type of program that we needed and would benefit from in the Paralympic movement. So I worked to create a global sports mentoring program focused on sport for persons with disabilities. And we really incorporated a rights-based approach as well. So that program brings in started the first cohort or the first class was in 2016. And we usually have somewhere between 15 and 20 participants, emerging leaders from the disability sports world from all over the world come to the U.S. for four to five weeks for a mentorship program and to really develop and hone skills um, and expertise in organizing events, um, managing, promoting, fundraising, all areas of sport development from the local level, even to the Paralympic level. That's what people are aiming towards. So there's an amazing network of emerging leaders who many of them are are in leadership positions now, especially the earlier folks, and they connect with each other across years and across programs. There's a program in Bolivia where we're bringing together our global sports mentoring leaders from, from South America with our empowering women and girls leaders to talk about social change in the Americas and how they can work together to do that. We're coming to an end, so I have one quick question for both of you. We'll start with Sherry. We'll end with Anne. What do you want to see in the next five to 10 years in the area of Paralympics? Okay, I'll be brief. First off, we are hosting the Olympic and Paralympic Games in Los Angeles in 2028. And so by 2028, uh, by the time the Paralympics opening ceremonies happen in Los Angeles, I want every person in the United States to know what the Paralympics is and to know what it represents, the fact that it's the pinnacle of elite sport for people with disabilities and that following under that, there's a whole, of course, it's like the tip of the pyramid, but there's a whole pyramid that's under that in terms of people involved at the school level and people involved recreationally, some of them whom, you know, end up at the Paralympics. So awareness of the movement, I think it would be a big goal uh, from my perspective. Awareness drives everything else, right? You can't be it until you can see it. So for so many young people, knowing what the movement is and someday aspiring to engage in the movement, whether at the recreational level or the elite level, that would be my vision. And then ubiquitous opportunities in schools. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you on the 2020 games and the opportunities that presents for us. And, and I also want to see the Paralympic movement recognized as the social change movement. We're demonstrating leadership in this area. We have leadership expertise and a history of this kind of work. And I think it's about telling these stories, connecting people from different generations, and really um, engaging the entirety of the Paralympic movement in this social change work, because it's a powerful network. I wanted to mention that Sherry and I both represent the Paralympic movement. And um, there are other, you know, in the disability sports realm, especially 
Special Olympics plays a big role for people with intellectual disabilities and also Deaf Olympics for people who are deaf and hard of hearing. And we kind of each work in our own, you know, organizations. And we do have some Special Olympics athletes who compete at the elite level in Paralympic sport. But I wanted to make sure that that we mentioned those organizations as resources potentially for, you know, people with other disabilities not related to the Paralympic movement. So I want to thank both of you. And we will, as we always do, have information at the end of the program to allow people to learn more about some of the organizations that you've been discussing. And as one who never participated in athletic activities except to be an observer, although when I was in Brazil, I learned about bocce for quadriplegics. So the games are really advancing. In my view, there are opportunities for everybody with various forms of disability. I think what we've learned today is that sports is very important for everyone. And we really want to ensure that disabled individuals, their families, educators, and healthcare providers understand that participation for disabled people is as important as for non-disabled people. So thank you so much for the work you do. Thank you, Judy. Thank you, Judy. Now it's time for Ask Judy, a segment where Judy answers questions sent in by listeners. It was really great to learn more about Ann and Sherry. You know, I've known them for a number of years, and it's great to both talk about their history, where they are, and their futures. Yeah. And both of them have really done so much great work in their lifetime that they'll continue to do great work in the future. And I think what's important about both of them is they're both great role models. Mm-hmm. Really great role models. And I feel like for our listeners, we really only hit like the top of the iceberg of everything that they do and have done. So I will just encourage everyone to look at the description of the episode because there's a lot more to both of them, don't you think? Absolutely. Yeah. And today's question for Ask Judy comes from John Beach. John asked, what did Judy want to be when she was growing up? That's a great question, John. And in the very beginning, I really don't think I had an idea. But as I was getting older, going to Camp Jeanette, meeting other disabled people who were older than me and were thinking about their futures, I started to think about what do I want to do? So I had the speech therapist, Mrs. Malakoff, who had told me when I was in the fifth grade that I would be a great speech therapist and I could get a job in a hospital and get an MRS degree. And then my friends in high school, when I was talking about wanting to be a teacher said, oh no, no, the Department of Rehabilitation will never support you to be a teacher because you don't know another teacher who is a wheelchair user. So I think what I did is I combined those two together. I majored in speech and theater. I minored in education, but I also studied voice. I studied voice for about 10 years. I auditioned at Juilliard. I very much was interested in theater, but at that point, I think I didn't have maybe the drive to try to push forward in a very competitive field because it was so difficult for me to get around. There was no accessible transportation. I wasn't able to drive and I couldn't really see how I was going to be able to do all the training I needed to do and the ability to get to auditions. So I think I was able to combine my professional interests ultimately in education. And I love to go to the theater and love to go to synagogue and sing in synagogue. So not a professional singer and actually Kylie, now that I'm older, (laughs) 
my voice is not, it's not what it used to be. (laughs) But I love music. I love theater. I didn't know that. I didn't know you auditioned for Juilliard. I did. I knew you sang, but I didn't know this like whole theater piece. Yeah, I auditioned for Juilliard and they said I should come back a year later because they thought I was still a little too young. Oh. But my parents really did not see this as a viable career. Mm -hmm. So I think that also was a little bit dampening on my thoughts of what I would do. Right. But I'm very happy with the decisions I have made. Yeah. And then your career took off all these paths you probably didn't expect at all. At all. (laughs) Which is why I always say, be open to new things. Mm -hmm. That's great advice to end on. So thank you, Judy. And thank you, John, for the question. Thanks for tuning in to The Human Perspective. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review our show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. You can also follow Judy on Twitter at Judith Human and on Instagram and Facebook at The Human Perspective. If you want to find out more information about this episode's guest or resources relating to the discussion, check out the description of this episode or visit judithhuman.com. You can also find a shortened video version of this interview on Judy's YouTube channel, dropping a week after this podcast is published. Otherwise, be sure to check back every other Wednesday for a new podcast episode. The intro music for The Human Perspective is Dragon, which is produced and performed by Lachi, Yontero, and Warren. The outro music is I Wait by Galen Lee.